Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. We'll read down to verse 31 this morning. The word of God says this. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning for your grace. We thank you that we're able to come here and meet and praise your name and Lord, just think about who you are. But Lord, we come to the point this morning where we hear from you. And I pray, Lord, that you would use me this morning. Help me to speak clearly, powerfully, and purposefully. Lord, we want to hear from you. And we know, Lord, that you are jealous over your people. Not envious, but jealous over your own. We know that you love your church, that you build your church. But we know that there are many that attack it and ultimately attack you. There are wolves everywhere. So Lord, will you help us this morning to learn some of these lessons that we might be guarded against the enemies of the church. Lord, will you teach us, challenge us. Whatever it is this morning, Lord, we ask that you would have your way amongst us. I pray that the Holy Spirit would go before and prepare our hearts to hear from your word. But more so, Lord, that you would drive us to apply your truth. Let our theology be living, alive, and seen by others. And in through the power of your spirit and the truth of your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alexander the Great, if you've looked at, if you're into history and you've looked at Alexander the Great and you'll have uh, seen that he was a, a, an amazing military general, there's, there's no two words about it, the, the speed at which he conquered and the, and the actual fastness of what he conquered, um, it, it, it's miraculous, near miraculous. He was certainly a gifted uh, leader. And there's many stories told about him, but one, uh, whether uh, true or not, um, I can't validate because I wasn't there. But in best evidence that he did uh, partake in this event and, and say these things. But it's said that he was, he was, walking, uh, he was in uh, one of his campaigns and he awoke one night restless and he started to walk about and basically walked about you know, the fortified ramparts and stuff and, and uh, the, the, the edge of the camp. And he found a soldier asleep. Now in those days, if you were found asleep on watch, especially under Alexander and, 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 and that army and that regime, they, they, were, they were strict on it. What's said they do, the, the generals would do, if they found soldiers asleep, 
that they would literally pour flammable liquid, kerosene or something like that, over them and, and light them. Such was the, such was the uh, uh, task that was before them and, and how important it was for them to be awake in case the enemy attacked when all the other soldiers were resting. It was a, an important position. So Alexander's walking and he's walking around and he fi- finds a soldier asleep. And as Alexander walks up to him, the, the soldier uh, rustles and he starts to awake and he's absolutely shocked, I'm sure, to find Alexander uh, the Great in front of him. And Alexander uh, says to him, Soldier, what's your name? And the soldier replied, Alexander, sir. Alexander the Great asked him again, he said, Soldier, what's your name? And he said, Alexander the Great. He asked him again the third time, he said, Soldier, what's your name? He said, It's Alexander, sir. And Alexander the Great then replied, Soldier, either change your name or change your conduct. And that's so applicable for us today because we carry a much greater name than any man can give. We don't represent Alexander the Great. We represent King Jesus. And it's his name we carry. And it's his church that we're part of. And unfortunately, sad to say, we have fallen asleep and we have allowed enemies into the church the body of Christ we haven't lived up to the name and the high standard that we've been called to and we have been called to a high standard there is no higher standard it's heaven's standard it's Christ's standard and, and we have allowed enemies to enter into the church. And this is what this message, and it's going to be two parts because I had to get it down to ten and really I could go on and on. We could spend a year in this. Such is the drasticness of how we have fallen asleep in these last days and allowed all these enemies to enter into the church. And so we've, uh, we've left the church unguarded. And also we've left the church discarded. Because the local church, the body of Christ, is now the poor cousin in Christianity. Set aside. But yet she's the bride of Christ. She's beautiful and she's magnificent. She'll be washed and presented before the Lord. Spotless and clean one day. The local church is Christ's church. It is his only mandate for his truth to be disseminated is through the local church. It's Christ's design. We live in an age where, you know, personally I believe that a lot of churches are wrong. And, you know, I do a lot of things in threes. And I don't know, I'm a Trinitarian, I tell you this. But, you know, I have the three E's. I've got evangelism as a kind of spearhead. You may have seen me do this before. But the foundation of evangelism should be another two years. Number one, eschatology, and I mean correct understanding of end times stuff, what is going to happen. And ecclesiology, what is happening now, who we are now. And those two together correct our evangelism in the correct way. If we don't have these, whatever we're doing in evangelism is faulty. But ecclesiology is a study of the church. The doctrine of the church. The 
called out people of God. And I think it's one of the most misunderstood, misaligned, discarded truths of the Bible that you will find in modern Christianity today. Eschatology is another one. Possibly soteriology. Study of salvation. But understanding the church, who we are. We've let enemies in. We've let enemies in. And it's Christ's church. That's what he said, Matthew 16. I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia, my called out people. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That means that Christ is the builder, but we will face battles. It's his church. His truth. We're his people and we will face battles. The problem is we've fallen asleep and we have let enemies into the camp. And Paul, in our opening text, look at Acts 20 there again. And this is the springboard for this. But look at what Paul says. Look at verse 31. He says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I've ceased not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. Literally Paul has been grieved with this. He has been before the Lord and before those people telling them to watch. Why? Verse 28. Take heed. Talking to leaders. At this point it's the elders of Ephesus that he's called. One final exhortation for them. And he says take heed therefore to yourselves. And to the flock. The church. The people of God. He says watch. Which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. To feed the church of God. This is the doctrine. This is ecclesiology. Doctrine of the church. With he has purchased with his own blood. It's his church. And the leaders in the church. The elders in the church. Are to feed the church. Verse 29. For I know that after my departing. Shall grievous wolves enter in among you. Not sparing the flock. Notice the two ways that the sheep can die. First way. They're not fed. They're not fed. It's what we need in, in churches and pulpits today. The people need feeding. Not from the culture. Not from popular opinion. But from the word of God. Amen. And that's the job of the overseer. That's the job of the uh, pastor. The elder. To teach the word of God. And teach it in truth. And if the people aren't fed. They'll starve and they'll ultimately die. In the spiritual sense. That's why we have churches that are filled. With dying sheep. They're not being fed. What's the second way? Wolves. Kill them. There's wolves everywhere. Within the church and without. Everywhere. We need to be on guard. What does this mean? It it means that we need to be awake. We need to be aware. And we need to be revealing these things. Not pretending that they're not happening. Not pretending that we might even face some of these things within Milton Baptist Church. But understand that we have to be on our guard. And when we see these things, we can have no place for them. That's what we're warned. That's what Paul cried over. Not to let the enemies of the church in. So what are these enemies? We're going to have a look at 10, and we're not going to get through 10. We'll do 5 and 5, hopefully, Lord willing, and, and, and break it up. What's, what's the first one? We have to start with false teaching. Turn to 2 Peter 
chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to bounce around some just verses as we look at these topically. To Peter, chapter 2 and verse 1. As we read this, it's worth paying attention to the tenses here. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately or privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So here Peter's talking about false teaching. Paul's talking about false teaching. You go through the, the New Testament early church and you will find everywhere talking about false teachers. Jude, what's he write? He says, I was going to write something completely different, but this is what's going on and I need to write that we contend for the faith, that we stand up for truth. Now what is a false teacher? Simply somebody that teaches falseness or false things. That's it. That's the simple definition. What is a true teacher? A true teacher is somebody that speaks the truth in love. In love. Ephesians 4 verse 15, Paul says this. You don't have to turn there. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. We've got to speak the truth. We've got to be loving. That doesn't mean that we don't have strength to our message. But we want to make people aware in the right way about the false teaching that's out there. We want to love them and speak truth. And speaking truth is simply speaking and recounting what God has already said. Whether we like it, whether we agree with it, that that does not matter. We're to speak the truth. But we live in a world, we live in this Christendom bubble where there's false teachers everywhere. Remember said that one of the things about sheep is they need to be fed. Now, all of us, all of us have to eat at some point. That's just the way we're built. We need to. I ask you this. If I was to invite you, say, come, come, come with me this afternoon. I'm going to make a Sunday dinner. Why don't you come and have dinner with me? And you came and sat at the table. And I went and prepared in the kitchen. I came back and I put a plate out there which had some roast potatoes on it. They were cooked nicely and they were lovely. Some veg, reasonable, microwave bag, but looks all right. Some Yorkshire puddings. No, oh, that looks all right. Everyone, everyone's looking good. It's gravy. And then you looked at the chicken. And it wasn't cooked at all. What would you do? Would you eat it? Why? Why wouldn't you eat the uncooked chicken? Huh? You'd get poisoned. Not good for you. You might even die. So people discern what they eat physically all the time. Spiritually, why would it be any different? If I was to sit up here and feed you this sermon and you say, Oh, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then say something that's not in line with the word of God. Would you eat that whole meat? Some of you would. Some of you would. You wouldn't even see it. You wouldn't even recognize it. You wouldn't study it. You wouldn't be a Berean. You wouldn't look at the scripture and say, is that man speaking God's truth? That's what's going on spiritually. The people are being fed poison. 
And they're just eating it. Eating it up. Eating it up. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 to 2. Listen to what Paul again warns as he speaks to Timothy, this uh, young pastor of what? The local church. He says, now the Spirit, this is uh, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their consciences seared with a hot so if we're warned that this is what's going to happen this is what's coming and we're living in that by oh my are we living in those words now are we not to discern what we're being fed surely we should be you know these false teachers can teach falseness and they will pull people away but ultimately God has given us his word and ultimately to be understood in a simple way that will keep us from these false teachers. If we just examine the means that we're being served and the food that we're being fed, is it doctrinally pure? That's what we're called to, to as teachers of the word of God and as people of, of the word of God to speak the things which become sound doctrine. Fortunately, false teachers are a plenty. We've let our guard down. We've let our guard down. 19th century. Taking God at his word kind of gets thrown away a little bit. You see the birth of all these cults. Liberalism follows. Look where we are now. Postmodern. This is not postmodern. This is post-postmodern. This is how far we've gone. Where two plus two can be whatever you want it to be. We've let these things into the church. But we've got to be alert. We've got to be Bereans. <coughs> we've got to watch sorry, against these false teachers. So that's the first enemy of the church. False teaching. Second enemy of the church. Worldliness. Turn to James chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse number 4. James 4 and verse 4. James says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now of course we have to take James in his context, but the application is, is manifold. That we're not of the world. Jesus says that. John 17 verse 16. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. We looked at this in our Bible study on Wednesday night in 1 Peter that we're strangers and pilgrims. We're not of this world. And fellowship with this world especially when it comes to the church is not to be tolerated. We're citizens of heaven. Unsaved people, they're of the world. They'll do worldly things. But for us, we've been transformed. 
made new. Godliness has no place in the church. But unfortunately, the church is becoming more like the world. Because it thinks by some way of allowing the world to shape us and form us as the church that really we'll reach more people. This is what we're seeing in churches. Where are they getting all these ideas from? It's not from the Bible. It's from the world. From the world. I remember reading an article a few years ago now about the Christian Resource Exhibition goes on once a year and people gather and sell all their wares and merchandise around Christianity. But the keynote speaker for one of the events was um, Bobby Ball from Cannon and Ball. Remember Cannon and Ball? And what the Church of England were doing was they were bringing him in to do a workshop on comedy to arrest the fallen numbers within the church. That if we can get better at telling jokes and making people laugh, we'll bring them in. What is it? It's worldliness. Worldliness. And the more the church becomes like the world, it loses its witness and its power. It's, it's not different. It's not distinct. And we are called to be distinct. The world should see something different in us. So worldliness everywhere in the church. I'm going to play you a little clip. This is from Saddleback Church. The Saddleback Church in America. So Rick Warren, you heard of Rick Warren? Purpose Driven Church. He's stepped down now. New pastoral team in there. Saddleback Church, which was part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Saddleback Church, on a Sunday morning, when they meet, 32,000 people will gather there. That's their attendance. 32,000 people. So this is a few weeks ago. They have, they have started a new sermon series. Called that the movies. Watch this. Well. Hi Bo Peep. Hey lady. Uh, good to see you. Good to see you too. Are you at church? Yes we are. Welcome to Saddleback everybody. <laughs> As you guys are being seated, tell your partner beside you, do you do you vote for Team Woody or Team Buzz? And I better hear a lot of Team Woody out there. <laughs> Go ahead and grab a seat, y'all. Well, um, I want to thank the creative team that convinced me to dress like Woody. <laughs> they definitely won't be getting a raise. <laughs> I must say, Andy's been a very good sport about this because it was not his idea that, yeah. that he, he's been a good sport. So, yes, we are so thankful that you're here. And if you're wondering what in the world is happening right now and what have I stepped into, maybe you're a first-time guest with us, we want to say welcome. And you have shown up for a very special weekend here at Saddleback Church. We are in the middle of a series this summer, a four-part series called At the Movies. And this weekend, we're going to be looking a little bit deeper at the story of Toy Story. And so that is why you get to see Andy and I dressed up like Woody and Bo Peep. Yes. So if you are, if you do happen to be a first-time guest with us, it is such an honor to have you with us. And we want to honor you during this series. We're doing something very special for our first-time guests. 
which is we want to give you a free movie ticket as our way of saying thanks for coming. And so the way that you can get that is if you will check in with us on your connection card. You can do that digitally by scanning the QR code, or you can do that with a connection card in your program that you got when you came in. That's a church service. That's Sunday morning church service. That's not some kids camp. That's Sunday morning church service. 32,000 people going to listen to that. Hear what she said? We're going to look at the story of Toy Story deeper. What's, what's the Toy Story character? What's the astronaut? Buzz Lightyear. To infinity and beyond the Bible. That's worldliness. That's worldliness. That's a church of 32,000 people. What's happened? They're asleep. And they've let the world in. The day I stand in this pulpit. Dressed as... (laughs) Somebody tackle me to the ground. Somebody tackle me. Absolutely not. It's, it's worldliness. But we laugh, but it's everywhere. They are a highly influential church. And people across America, churches across America, are starting to copy this mandate. It flows down. Worldliness. Can't have it. Next enemy. Legalism. Legalism. Turn to Acts chapter 15. Verse number 1. Acts chapter 15. Verse number 1. And certain men, which came down from Judea, taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here we have legalism. Legalism, you associate it with law. That's the best way to look at it. And basically, what, it's, what it legalism is, it just simply is, is, is the system that tells you you have to do something for your salvation. That there's more to do. And that's what these Judaizers came and they did. And they said, simply, that you have to be circumcised. You have to do something. But we know that the message of the gospel is it's done. That's the, the, the primary truth of the gospel. It's done. It is finished. That's the cry from the cross. It is finished. Hebrews sat down once. Forever. Done. It's done. But legalism comes in and says, no, 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 you have to do more. You have to do more. It's an enemy of the church. It's an enemy of the gospel. It's an enemy of Christ. And we have to guard from it. And it's easy to let it slip in. Now that doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries. That doesn't mean that we don't have uh, systems in place that help us. That's the local church and it should do. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about legalism. That tells you that you have to do something else to keep your favour with God in terms of salvation. We know that the gospel is clear. We know the account of the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Sir, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they shall be saved. Faith that leads to regeneration. Not regeneration that leads to faith. Faith, believe, and they will be saved. That's it. 
It's not what I do that counts, it's what Christ has done. Who, who did the Passover meal with us? Uh, right. Do you remember the song, Deanu or Deanu? Okay, I'm not going to ask you for a solo, don't worry. The Jews sing this at Passover, it's beautiful. And it really it marks the Exodus story as, as the Lord brings them out of Egypt. And, and Danu means it would have been enough. And basically they sing these verses. Uh, one of them is if, if you brought us to Sinai and didn't give us a law, it would have been enough. If you brought us to Jerusalem and didn't build a temple, it would have been enough. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. But as Christians, we should sing, it is enough. It is enough. It's done. It's done. And legalism speaks against that. You know, people come along today and say, you know, you can't be saved unless you get baptized in water. You can't be saved unless this or that or whatever it may be. Listen, here's the truth of the gospel. No matter who you are, where you are, or what you've done, you sit here uh, this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ is calling you onto himself, saying to you, I have paid it all. You simply have to come to me in repentance and faith and ask me to be your saviour and I will save you from your sin once for all forever. I will separate it as far as the east of the west. I'll remember it no more. You will not face a judicial penalty for every sin that you've committed, every thought that has been wicked. I've paid it all for you and it's done. And never again will you stand under that judgment. That's the gospel. Legalism wants to come in against that. So we have these enemies and false teachers, worldliness, legalism. Next enemy, formalism. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And, and when I say formalism, immediately you're going to think about the way I'm dressed. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul writing again says, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Formalism is to do with the outward. It's presenting yourself as holy, as righteous, really self-righteousness, this cloak of your own righteousness, and, and presenting yourself before others. This is hollow. There's no substance to it. Now, Claire loves cabbage cream eggs. He likes cabbage cream eggs. I'm not a big fan. Claire, yeah, Claire loves them. Claire loves them. But if I had worked the recipe out to make cabbage cream eggs, and I had been able to go on the internet and find the pattern for the printing, and was able to print the sheet, and basically make my own counterfeit cabbage cream egg. But I didn't put any filling in it just chocolate shell and then I wrapped it up took it to her handed it to her said here my beloved have a cabbage cream egg like an offering to the gods that'll appease you and she would take it and look and go it looks like a cabbage cream egg I'm, I'm happy with that I'll have it and I'll take it she didn't eat it there and then she put it away on the shelf and was looking forward to this garbage cream egg. And then one day she decides, you know, I'm having a hard day at work, need a sugar rush, whatever it is, I'm going to break out this garbage cream egg that's been given in love by my loving husband. She unwraps it, looks good, bites the top off, ready to get in to the little pot of sugar that lies within there. 
And there's nothing there. Nothing there. That's formalism. There are people today that walk about like counterfeit cream eggs. Look the part, but when you get to the inside, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. So Paul talks about in, in Romans when he's talking about he that is a Jew is a Jew inwardly. Now I want to I say something to you this morning. I, I want you to hear this, church. And understand what I mean. And I'm, I'm sure I've said it before, but take it as I mean it. That God doesn't really care about the act. All he cares about is the attitude. Because if the attitude is right, the act will always be right. Always. God looks on the inside. And the heart. That's what he's concerned with. And that's where everything uh, bursts out of. And that's what he sees first and foremost. So if the attitude isn't right, it doesn't matter what you do after that. It's formalism. You come to church and you may be dressed up, you may look the part, you may have you know, six Bibles in your bag. We say, well, I've been at church every Sunday morning for 20 years. If you haven't had them when change the Holy Spirit, that's just formalism. You're a counterfeit cremated Christian. There's nothing in there. Nothing. Nothing. This is an enemy of the church. Unfortunately, the church is full of people like this. The church widespread. None of you, I'm sure. But the Lord knows. He knows. He looks in the heart. Samuel, in dealing with David, says what? But the Lord looketh in the heart. Man looks in the outward. The Lord looks in the heart. What's inside? The stupid phrase is what's inside that counts. It really does when it comes to the Christian. It really does. J.C. Ryle says that true sanctification does not consist in outward formalism and external devoutness. You can come to church all you want. It ain't going to make you a Christian. You can look as good as, 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 as you can. It ain't going to make you a Christian. You can get as many Bibles as you want. It ain't going to make you a Christian. My grandmother. I don't think she was a safe woman. Certainly when she lived in her life and her health. Maybe towards the end. Who knows. But when I got saved and you know. Um, became a pastor anytime I would visit what she would do in the house was she would place Bibles strategically around the house so we come in coffee table that wouldn't have a Bible on it all year round Kevin's visiting his church there's a Bible lying there what's she doing? oh I, I'm a good person I read the Bible formalism there needs to be something in there it's an enemy of the church if we, we allow it and don't confront it and be honest about it. That there has to be a change in there. And only the Lord can do that. Next enemy of the church. Enemy number five. Emotionalism. Jeremiah chapter 17. Verse number nine. Turn there with me. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on Christian warfare, 
says, emotion is a vital part of Christian faith, but emotionalism is not. He divides the two. They're not synonymous. Emotion is an important part of the Christian faith. Absolutely it is. God made us with emotion. But emotionalism has no place within the church. In fact, it's an enemy of the church. We are to be of sound mind. We're to be controlled and led by the word of God, not by our feelings and our emotions. Because the Bible's clear. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Let me paraphrase that about the heart is deceitful. It's deceptive. It's destructive. Who can know it? Emotions can't be trusted. But the truth of God's word... It's objective, not subjective. And it can be trusted. But often we are, we're all guilty of this, being led by our feelings. It's dangerous. I mean, you get into the Bible, turn to Genesis. Let's go to, back to the beginning. We'll only have a little look at some examples. We'll only start in the beginning. But turn to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. We'll see feelings at play. We'll see the heart at play. Genesis 3 verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof. There's emotionalism in that. Feelings leading astray. Turn to chapter 4 verse 5. Cain and Abel. But unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth or angry and his countenance fell. His feelings were hurt. And we know what happened. We know where his feelings led him. Led him to the first recorded murder. Scripture. What about Joseph and his brothers? Turn to chapter 37 of Genesis. Verse 4. Genesis 37 verse 4. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Look at verse 11. It says his brethren envied him. Feelings. Emotions gone awry. We know what happens in that story. We could look at Moses. He lost it. Struck the rock. We go on and on through scripture and you'll see that when we're not led by the word of God, when we're led by our feelings, our feelings ultimately will lead us astray and they can harm our growth. Luther once said, for feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceived. My warrant is the word of God. Nothing else is worth believing. So when the feelings come in, the emotionalism comes in, Got to go to the Word of God. What does God say? What does God say? Fortunately, we live in a current climate where churches thrive in emotionalism. They fire it up and then lead people astray because they're feeling good. Again, Martin Lloyd Jones says in his book on Christian Warfare some people live on emotionalism or sentimentalism. Sentimentalism. As they believe that nothing matters except 
this kind of riot or excitement of the emotions. They will, of course, do everything they can do to encourage it, and quite often it's deliberately worked up. There are services in which people clap their hands and shout and sing and repeat certain types of courses. It's done deliberately to work up excitement. The more excited they get, the more emotional they become, the more wonderful they think the blessing of the Spirit has been. It is mere emotionalism. Emotionalism is an enemy of the church. It takes us away from the truth of God. Emotion in the church, godly, righteously, correctly, beautiful. Emotionalism is an enemy of the church. So, five enemies of the church. We have another five to go. Not next week, but the week after. Number one, false teaching. We have to be awake to it. We have to stand up to it. Number two, worldliness. We cannot let the world into the church. The world has no part in the church. None whatsoever. It will lead us astray. Legalism. We cannot add anything to the gospel. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Formalism. We need to get our hearts right before God. We may look right to others, but that's not what God sees. It's not the act, it's the attitude, it's the heart. Number five, emotionalism. We have to be grounded in truth and not carried away by our feelings that can lead us astray and in the places of darkness. These are enemies of the church and anything that we would do to attempt for the glory and good of God, these things will attack. But church, we've got to be awake and that's what I challenge you to, to be on your guard because we all need to be on our guard. It's my duty as the shepherd of this little flock to be on my guard. And to warn you and to tell you when there's wolves at the door and to chase wolves away when they come into this church. But we all bear responsibility of this. If I drift into worldliness in my teaching, my preaching and my worship style, I need you to pull me back and hold me accountable to the word of God. If I drift into legalism, I need you to hold me accountable to the word of God. If I drift into formalism, I need you to hold me accountable to the word of God. If I drift into emotionalism, Claire will tell you there's no danger of that because I've got a heart of stone. <laughs> but you need to hold me accountable to the word of God. And I need to hold you accountable to the word of God. As we together stand in these last days and face down the enemies of the church. In the strength of God and in the word of God. Let's pray.